0: Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz.
1: And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and all things um, food and domestic history. And today we are also joined by Nick, who is a fount of knowledge about these things. Hello. (laughs) Thanks.
2: Hello.
3: It's mostly because to
2: the podcast when I'm editing. That's how I learn it all.
3: it's, It's all just like revolving knowledge. So, I'm going to ask you this time, what have you been making or baking? Oh. oh, you're asking me?
1: Oh, I, was just oh, I know one.
0: what Nick's been doing. <laughs>
1: I would hope so, uh,
3: given that you live in the same house. Um, oh, what have I been doing? I haven't managed to bake yet, but I,
1: I have a plan. I'm going to make some savoury flapjacks uh, this weekend.
3: I need... flapjacks.
1: yes exactly um because i am back on campus and i need snacks uh <laughs> so
0: is, is that basically like an oat
1: cake um i think it's it's more like a flapjack it's a food recipe i found in a bbc good food magazine and it's for like cheese and chive flapjacks which is Ooh. intriguing so i'm gonna try that and yeah. see how it comes out <laughs> i don't know what you put in like in
3: in substitute of the like syrup and sugar and stuff hold on I think I can actually find the recipe probably uh what have you got we've got butter porridge oats grated carrot um mixed seeds cheddar cheese oh eggs
0: Okay, eggs eggs provide some binding as well.
3: Yeah. Okay,
1: that sounds doable. Yeah. So I'm going to give that a go, (laughs) having never had a savoury flapjack before. Um, and I am still working on my improbably shaped hat, which is almost done now. Actually,
0: (laughs) I don't remember if you've explained on the on the podcast why the hat is improbably shaped.
1: Probably haven't. It's a a Willy Wormhead pattern, um, which if you uh have not heard of this knitwear designer um she makes these like all she designs is hats, and they are all just really interesting construction like there's just something new about all of them so this one is knitted sideways um which is like very interesting construction for a hat um and there's some color work in it and there's a lot of short rows um, so when you like knit a bit and then you turn around halfway through the row and you knit back and you like shape it that way. So yeah, um, there's, yeah. So there's been quite a few first time for me techniques, which has been fun. Um, and I need a hat <laughs> because every hat I've ever knitted myself has either, either I've lost it or it's turned out too big because apparently I have a really small head.
0: Send them to me. I have the opposite problem.
1: Oh, great. I'll send you my really nice uh, hat that I crocheted out of like fancy um like teas water yarn or something and it doesn't fit. I'm, I'm going to send you that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, that's me. How about you guys? Um, I've finished my basket weave scarf. Oh, amazing. So now I have the, the hat glove
3: scarf set. It's going to be so matchy matchy. And Nick, you've been, you've been brewing. I have been brewing. At the moment, I've got a honey beer going on,
2: which Ooh. is, yeah, a lot of people say, oh, like, like mead, but it is distinct because it's honey and hops,
3: so it's going to uh-huh. taste quite different.
1: That sounds quite good actually, because like contrast between the sweet and the like kind of like sour hop taste.
3: Oh. Mm.
0: It smells amazing.
2: Yeah, at the moment it's uh, kind of a light beer. It's still, you know, it's still fermenting and everything. Yeah, it's
0: about two point nine at the moment.
2: Yeah, so if it creeps just a bit over that,
3: it'll be a nice light beer to to have um, in the kind of spring summer. Ah, oh, so that's yum. that's
2: pretty good. I only made a small amount because you need a lot of honey for it. Oh. Like how much? That's We used a couple of jars, didn't we?
0: Basically, a pound per gallon of water or thereabouts. Okay.
3: Yeah. It's a lot of
0: honey. Yeah. I was sat on the floor stirring honey into a bucket of water, like some sort of weird gremlin.
3: Mm, Beer wizard. (laughs) Yep.
2: I would also do distilling, but that may cause explosions. So. I'm not allowed to do that in the house.
1: Isn't that also, like, illegal unless you have a licence? Only if you sell
3: it. Oh, right. <laughs> in that case.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'd am I'm, just be keeping all that.
3: Yeah, one day when we have
0: space for a shed, we'll have a distilling shed. Brilliant. Which feels very prohibition. <laughs> just distill out back. <laughs> yeah, and or, like, fantasy wizard. You could make them all pretty colors, so that it'd be like potions.
2: I could indeed, and yeah. maybe have some fancy glasses.
0: Yeah, definitely. Get some goblets. Yeah. And you say that we already own two goblets. I know, but
1: you can always have more goblets, right? When I worked in the fancy craft ale place, if anyone ordered the um, imported Belgian beer. We'd like with with much ceremony and fanfare. We would go and get down one of the big goblets from the shelf and like serve it in that, and it was just like the highlight of my shift.
3: Well, Belgian beer is worth celebrating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Nick. Yeah. You, you are telling us about this week's person. I am. He
2: is one of the titans of French cuisine who had a really huge role in modernizing professional cooking and generally the whole um yeah restaurant and hotel industry alongside um mr ritz of oh, wow. the ritz fame.
1: It's
3: somehow ob- I didn't connect the Ritz
1: with like being named after someone. Like there was actually a Mr. Ritz. That was amazing.
0: I I've, think I've had the same problem because when I hear Ritz, I think Ritz crackers.
1: <laughs>
0: See, Mr. Ritz um, Cracker.
3: Yeah, I think it's... Uh, I can't remember what it's called now. It's
2: been the Ritz. It's the Ritz Carlton, so that's half after Mr. Ritz and half after the guy
3: from Fresh Prince who isn't Will Smith. At least part of that is true. <laughs> but I won't say which. Anyway, yeah, it's Augustus Scoffier, who um, has a great name.
0: I've heard Some... that name. It's got Scoff in it, and that, that's yeah. why you know he's a good chef. It's a good name for a chef. It's
2: the name for a cartoon snail.
0: Is
1: that the name of a brand of biscuits, or am I misremembering?
2: Quite possibly, but in my head. Oh, he's no, it's Biscoff. It's just a little, um, little cartoon snail bobbing along in his life. <laughs>
0: See I always picture the chef from Ratatouille. <laughs> Brilliant. What's which... the chef's name from Ratatouille? I do not know. Wh- which Is which...
3: it Gusteau? I mean, it's the Gust- fat one. Oh, yes. I, I think, think it's Gusteau. Gusteau. Hmm. Yeah, um so I've I've been interested in kind of the origins
2: of Sort of fancy restaurant cooking for a while. Um and Escoffier was one of the big figures. I should go a bit back to um you know before he was around to explain some of the some of the context. So before him, the big guy was um Marie-Antoine Carême.
0: Oh, who, I've heard that name. Yeah,
2: he also is so rings
0: like, a bell, yeah.
2: Yeah, he's um when if you see in like a cartoon or something, just somebody piling up a ridiculous like display of, I don't know, some kind of sugary confection that's made like the Eiffel Tower, and people are all very impressed and they applaud. That's that's the kind of cooking that he really perfected, essentially.
3: It's like um, the, showy, the showy
2: stuff and very much for big banquets and displays cooking for hundreds of people.
0: Yeah, that's that's still a fairly medieval thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, he was sort of hmm. the the um apotheosis of that kind of thing. He really took that style as far as it could possibly go, but there were some drawbacks to that whole system of um his whole system of preparation and of of serving because It wasn't necessarily the most efficient thing to, you know, cook all of that all of that food and display it as it was. So it'd be like you just put it out there and it was served. Like, well, if you can get to that bit, you can have that bit. Um, if you want to get this other thing, well, it'd be a bit rude to reach across. So you're probably gonna end up going without
0: so it's uh la frances.
2: Yes. Uh was around the time of service à la Française, and kitchens were not the most organised of places, so you may not get the particular bit of food you wanted at this feast, even though it all looked very nice. And also, it might well be lukewarm or cold by the time it all came out. Oh no! Which just sounds absolutely terrible to me.
3: Well, yeah, especially the amount of
0: fat that you'd have. Like that era of cooking. just cold grease on everything.
3: Yeah, That's so
1: not what you expect. You go to your fancy rich person banquet and like everything's cold.
3: Hmm. So
2: enter Monsieur Escoffier. He was born um in quite what seems to be still quite a small town in um coastal the very coastal bit of uh Provence, uh Vienerve, um Lube. It's, today it's got a population of about 16,000, so you can imagine how tiny that was Oh wow! back in the day. Yeah, it's uh, him and Marshal Pétain, uh, the most famous residents, so it's a real mixed bag there. That's uh, Mr.
3: Vichy France. Oh! Yeah. Land of Contrasts is villeneuve Um And that's the last time I'm going to try saying that. But, uh, yeah, he's be, he worked from
2: the age of 12 in, until, like, 74, I
0: think. Can we can ask what, like, what years is this?
2: He was born 1846, and he died in the 30s.
0: Okay, so working from 12 isn't, like, ridiculous.
2: Yeah, it was like he probably got, you know, I don't, I didn't focus too much upon his early years, but I get the impression it was kind of a, uh, yeah, go out, get yourself a uh, a Saturday job, and you keep a bit, unless uh, unless he has some kind of very tragic backstory. But I haven't seen anything
3: about that. Just yeah, started working young, never stopped because he was just all about food and all about the kitchen. So he's um. Essentially, one of the most important things that
2: he brought to um to dining and to food preparation was sort of the professionalization of the kitchen. Because you would get you know, you'd still have um sorciers and chefs de um whatever. There'd there'd be various various um People with various skills working in the kitchen, but they didn't necessarily communicate properly. They didn't really uh have much of a plan going on. You'd be they'd all be in the kitchen, they'd be, you know, shouting and swearing and drinking and smoking, and then, you know, the waiter would come and yell. I think it was pretty much a guy who was called just the French for the yeller would come up and be like, Oi, two Two covers of the fish coming out, like, have to shout over the din of all the chefs. And Escoffier hated that. He said, all right, we're going to be really quiet in this kitchen. You're not allowed to drink and swear. Um, And also, it's not the, it's not the yeller, it's the announcer now. He will announce things at a normal volume, so you'll have to be quiet to hear what your job is. Which I think is fantastic. And can you imagine how that must have gone down? Like you could do that now. <laughs> Cause being a chef is partly I think because of media coverage, being a chef is kind of seen as being like quite a tough um and very sweary
3: job. Yeah, it's still like quite a high stress environment, I think. Just trying to imagine showing Escoffier kitchen nightmares. It it would certainly be an emotional experience for him, and the emotion would be sadness. I think um yeah, so that was
2: one of the um one of the big kind of reforms he did, or a couple of them was, you know, making sure that the chefs weren't just getting drunker throughout the day, um, and making sure that they could actually communicate and everything, and it sort of brought a whole new sense of of discipline to the whole thing. Because he'd say, right, you you know, you are the you're the sauceier, and you're on the meat. You need to be talking to each other all the time, because obviously the sauce will go on the meat. You don't want one hot while the others cold. And it was that kind of being able to communicate and everything meant that they could do things, you know, cook to order and things like that, which wasn't really as practical um, in Karem's day, which is why you'd have all of the lukewarm and cold food. You'd actually be able to say, all right, you know, you've got the onions chopped, you've got everything ready to be, you've got everything prepped. And so, you know, get cracking and you'd actually have hot dishes for the whole table and not just have what is actually such a nightmare that would make me cry, is being served lukewarm food by a professional chef. I just, I can definitely imagine being...
0: He's lit up. Uh, No, I was just making a noise of horror. (laughs) (laughs) I
2: I can imagine just being totally blown away, Um, being a small party sat around the table, being brought out food, like how, how's yours oh it's it's wonderful it's piping up yours yeah mine too what are, are you a witch what is this magic
0: I, th- I guess there is also the thing though of switching to courses is, is it a la russe
2: yeah service a la russe yeah switching
0: to that from a la francaise just sitting there being given one plate of food i can imagine just kind of being like where's the rest of it
2: <laughs> Alexander Kurakin, the uh, Russian diplomat.
0: Oh no, it's another name I'm going to have to spell in the transcripts
3: now.
2: I'm afraid so. Yeah, so that that was um, yeah. Everything can't all be put down to a scoffier I think that um, that approach spreading to France was definitely a big change, a big reform. It basically meant the end to that kind of medieval banquet sort of cooking,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which is really for the best. Let's be honest.
3: Then
1: it d- does make a lot of sense in a restaurant, like if a lot of things are meant to be eaten hot, then you're gonna want to bring them out when they're hot and not all
3: at the same time. Yeah. So that someone can like experience them at perfectly cooked. Yeah, and you can also tell how much um
2: how much he kind of refined things in terms of the actual um, actual dishes because i was looking at some menus um, it's a wonderful thing the new york public library for some reason has decided we've got to digitize some old menus everybody gather around the photocopier we've got to do this
0: well yeah for history reasons i do want respect
2: them i mean i'm just surprised because
0: we're just concerned that they were trying to digitize something with a photocopier <laughs>
2: Well, they fired that guy. Okay, but it's, I'm just very happy because it's like they've done it for me. Just
0: for you specifically. For me specifically, <laughs> I was just so
2: happy when I came across it. But you get.
0: We'll try and put a link to that in the show notes. Fantastic.
2: There, you can get some really horrible-looking menus that are like. Um, I mean, you, you know when you go to a really mediocre place that's just like so you know, you you're really hungry and you pop into somewhere that's just called like La Restaurante on the high street and it's got seven things on the on the menu and it's that kind of
0: thing is when you do that, it's you know, sometimes it's gonna be awful, but sometimes it's just the best stuff you've ever had because there's just this one guy that's really into food and doesn't really know how to run a restaurant, but god damn does he know how to cook.
2: That is true. It's one of those times when it is just like, you're thinking "Uh, there's a front. Because (laughs) you've just you've boiled some turkey is what you've done there. That's one of the things I saw on a a, quite a nice
0: boiled turkey
2: restaurant. There's some boiled dishes, there's some roast dishes. I think the turkey was on the boiled side. That's not right. Um Mm but then after you know i don't want to be all great man of history about this but i think you do you know having these kind of structural changes means you can do more interesting and more advanced food because it must be easy to boil loads of boil loads of meat and everything to get it all ready boil loads of turkey yeah boil boil all the turkeys
3: like the pilgrims would have wanted and um yeah i think changing to actually uh, be
2: responsive to somebody's needs means that, that doesn't happen so much anymore which is for the best yes um the difference between something like that and serving um oysters as one of the
3: starters and, and things like that you can really just do a hell of a lot more one thing I found interesting is how
2: much he worked in collaboration mm-hmm. with uh, César Ritz. It's kind of talking about um, you know, how people respond to the whole environment, to the menus, to the everything like that. They found that some English people were confused or intimidated. And so um, guess what special kind of menu was born?
1: Oh, is it the one where they describe what it is on the menu?
2: It's part partly that, but the uh, the fixed price <gasps> menu, so you can have just the because they weren't sure how oh. to select what kind of you know because
0: they were so used to the banquet style.
2: Possibly, possibly because um, there's a lot of a lot of detail. They weren't necessarily sure what would what would go together. You know what starters would follow on because. There'd be likely a lot of new dishes for for English travellers, because let's be honest, historically mm-hmm. speaking, um
0: We just eat the same thing wherever we go, yeah. It's
2: it's a mixed bag.
0: Oh of course the English are
1: responsible
3: for the set menu.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's basically, amazing. Um, yeah, basically went um, all right, here's um here's what you might like. Here's some oysters leading into a nice Bit of turbot for your main, and there's this other thing for for dessert, maybe uh, peach melba, because that's another thing that you can thank a scorpion for.
3: Hmm.
2: Which I was surprised at because it sounds, because of when I grew up and where I heard peach melba, I just kind of felt like, oh, that's something that was maybe big in the seventies or something like that. Because everything about it sounds very 70s. It, it does.
3: Really does.
2: Like, you have that after your main course, which is all in aspic.
3: <laughs> it's, a, it's a real Abigail's party vibe. Yeah, special, Mike Lee deep cut for you real ones out there. Um,
0: My question is, did they have ladies' menus?
3: I have not
2: seen uh, ladies' menus in the Ritz. Um...
0: Uh, for people that don't know, ladies' menus were basically the same menu but without the prices that you would give to the woman because obviously she's not paying, so she can just order whatever. It <sighs> doesn't have to worry about the price. There's. Actually, I will link to. There's a good Atlas Obscura article on them. I was just curious because I don't know when they started. I just know when they finished.
3: <laughs> I haven't. Um, yeah, when I was
2: when I was looking at the menus in the places where coffee worked, which was mainly the Savoy and the Ritz, mm-hmm. I couldn't see um, any kind of different menus but i didn't it was a non exhaustive search because obviously they change menus a lot and everything
3: like that so i can't promise that there were no ladies menus in these places but uh they certainly they certainly had some had quite a lot of of variety
2: i mean not not just um not just the places i think at this point generally aside from him putting those reforms in place, I think there was a big movement towards uh, the kind of, um, you know, a lot of variety, getting food quickly to the customer thing. So you could, I did see some uh, menus with like 70 or so uh, options in them. Wow. I mean, this this is like looking at maybe, um, you know, starters, mains, uh some drinks and stuff like that but it's,
3: so yeah
2: even at, at the time that's a really impressive logistical task cuz you know when i'm when i'm thinking about quite a crowded menu that with a lot of options i'm maybe thinking you know i i think i've seen that kind of thing at maybe a chain pub but that a lot of that stuff is they've got a little packet
3: mm-hmm. and they
2: can microwave it or um just warm it up somehow but that's absolutely not what could happen there they could maybe make a big batch of one of the mother sources but that still means a lot of further preparation i should probably
3: um
2: clarify mother sources <laughs> yes um so mother sources is something that i think i think that's from um it's either from karem or escoffier i feel i feel like karem talks a lot about sources and was very much a source champion
0: it's a saucy boy.
2: Yeah, it's an unofficial title bestowed <laughs> by me. Um, but it's stuff like the uh the Bechamel,
3: for instance, which is the the milky, milky one. You get just, you're thick in milk, but in a in a
2: nice way. But in like how I said it. it. Um, <laughs> there's uh the Espanol, which is like a darker thing. A velouté, which is, I think you use that one a lot with fish. It's quite a, one of those ones that's quite hard to put together, but it's a nice, like, silky texture.
0: Yeah, it's like a glossy stock. Oh, yeah,
2: glossy stock is perfect. perfect way of putting it. Um, and you get a tomato. And I think those are the main ones I can think of
3: offhand. Ola-
0: is hollandaise now? Yes, hollandaise.
3: That's, uh, that's it.
0: Oh, you're making me hungry.
3: <laughs> yeah so
2: karem talks a lot about those and i think um this coffee I really mm-hmm. emphasize them on the sources and i think that's another way that you can definitely cut down on on the prep time and also on on thinking time because if you see everything as part of that hierarchy
3: in in cooking as well as in the arrangement of staff i think you can really see clearly that um you know, is thinking the same way across across the board there, just thinking,
2: okay, with uh with this source I can easily go left or right and either way, you know, whatever happens, I'll I'll be prepared for whatever the customer wants.
1: That's so, really interesting because I, I always think like I most of those sources I haven't had yet. Um, but I always think of them as like the like the essence of french cuisine like that really classic and it's interesting to know that that was essentially
3: like standardized at a certain point
2: yeah absolutely it's um
3: it's one of one of those things where i think escoffier took that that focus but also
2: made sure to um to rebalance in some ways he said uh above all do it simply, that was his his motto,
3: mm. so you
2: get the refinement, but also you you do get him going all right, let's just do a nice simple dish with no you know fancy confection confectionery castles or whatever, but you're gonna have a really, really nice version of that.
0: is that why whole cuisine so much of it is just like he' four things on a plate,
2: yeah, pretty much it's just. I'm gonna do the nicest version of a steak that you've ever had with a really nice freshly made sauce. And I, I love that as a goal. You don't have to you don't have to reinvent the wheel, you just have to pour make
0: a nice wheel. Yeah, you just have
2: to make a nice wheel
3: and pour a nice little bit of sauce on it. An interesting thing is how, at the same time, I don't want to get
2: too much into it because I think he maybe deserves his own uh, segment or episode. But uh, Mr. Ritz, our old pal, was doing a lot of the basic stuff that we take for for granted, as well. Just like going, okay, we need to make sure that people aren't waiting ages for um, for service.
3: And that, um, you know, they don't. The the charges are simple. Because before
2: this this point, before this era, it hotels were basically like a Ryanair flight, but you're already there.
0: Oh, just like charging separately for every tiny thing. Do you mean?
2: Yeah, yeah. You'd you'd
3: get. Nowadays they just limit that to like the minibar, but before it was just. Ah, you see, you've used the, uh, you
2: know, you've used a a fancy bathroom or something like that, or various bits and pieces, so much so that uh, there was, I can't remember the the name now, but there was a a book around this time of um, just somebody's complaints about the hotel industry and all of the ways you get fobbed off and and robbed blind by it. So
0: I think we need to get hold of a copy of this book for a future episode. Maybe. I
2: think we do. So yeah, <laughs> just alongside the the restaurant being made a much more hospitable place, even for the English. Um <laughs> is how it went, okay, you know, on top of that, you're not gonna have any complaints about the room, about your stay, because we're just gonna keep things simple. You you book, you pay, you come in, you have a pleasant stay, where your needs are met nice and quickly, and you can eat at the restaurant where things will be warm.
3: Ah, oh, that is all you need. Yeah, I actually, I... it's one of those. Oh, one of. Those things... What do you saying, Hazel? No, I was saying that. Go on. <laughs>
2: um, it's one of those things that I thought was absolutely very much a bread and thread thing because it's you kind of assume with. Not so much about the predictors of cuisine, but with some basic stuff like food should be hot. You should be able to eat anything that is available, not just what's near you, and you shouldn't have to pay extra for ridiculous things at a hotel. Those things you think, well, that's just obvious. That's just what... (laughs) That's how it's always been, surely.
3: (laughs) But no. So At some point, somebody went yeah, this is all fine. The food was, uh, well,
2: I was just by the cress, <laughs> and actually, the cress was the one hot thing. It was just, it, just steaming cress.
3: <laughs> but um, then I had to go wash my hands, and we got charged for it. Was this hypothetical person eating the cress just by hand? Pitchfork, I think tiny little pitchfork.
0: The sauce was just so sticky. Sticky
1: cress. <laughs> Hot, sticky cress. Hot, sticky cress. <laughs> Hot,
2: sticky cress.
1: <laughs> Actually, I have um, sort of gathered from like novels and stuff that like going, ordering dinner at like, at, say, a tavern was just like you would go, you would order your dinner and it would just be ready when it was ready.
0: Either that or, like, you go a bit lower class and you have the forever soup. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Where they just constantly got this pot of stew on the fire and
3: it's like, oh, you're hungry? Have some soup. Mm. There's there's something in it. There's a rock.
2: And we thought it was going to be terrible, but thankfully, loads of other people turned up and they each put a thing in. (laughs) And a little bit later, bada-bing, bada-boom, we got a
0: restaurant. And we've been cooking it for 30 years. Oh, I read about...
1: No, I didn't read that. I saw it on a a, a food TV programme, this one burger restaurant in uh, an American city, I forget which, that has been cooking with the same grease for 90 years. That's going to have some flavour. They moved premises and they had to get like a police escort for the grease because it was so valuable. Oh my
3: god. Like they just kept topping it up. (laughs) That's. That's something. Anyway, back to the past. Well, I have a little wonderful tidbit here about Escoffier and Ritz. The, um, so apparently they, uh, weren't exactly good little lads. Did they do food crimes?
2: They did a little bit of embezzlement and fraud. Ritz more than Escoffier, it seems.
3: (laughs) did a classic,
2: um, yeah, did, did a classic bit of skimming with, uh, one of the suppliers so ordered some um yeah, ordered some like six hundred eggs. They delivered uh six hundred and fifty, pocketed some of the difference, you know, the classic kind of scam.
0: I assume pocketed the money, not the eggs.
2: <laughs> well, it's a long time ago. Let's
0: And they had bigger pockets then. Yeah.
3: Your suit just absolutely stuffed full of eggs. Yeah. I know what they say. You can't make an omelette without a suit full of eggs. Did he get caught by someone tapping
0: him on the back and it just went squelch?
2: That's going to be it. Oh no. Yeah. Now we're getting into territory, which I'm hoping to reserve for my historical novel, The Thief of Egg.
3: And read it. I'm imagining one of those like
0: Mills and Boone covers. Except he's like, he throws his shirt open, and instead of like a big bear six pack, it's just eggs taped to him. It's just eggs.
2: Which brings me to a question I didn't even know I had before today. If you had to tape eggs to your person, what kind of tape would you use?
0: I would use microporous tape. Oh. Because it's very sticky, but also designed to be on your skin for a long time. I feel like you'd need more of it than you would of other tapes, but it'd do the job well.
3: Makes a lot of sense. Okay. What about you, Hazel? Um. <laughs> uh... I'd, I'd, I'd probably go
1: for like a classic masking tape. Um, you know, not too sticky,
3: so you can get them off. But, like, it's, yeah, gonna be gentle on the the skin
0: as well. That makes sense, because I think the immediate thought is duct tape, but that's a really good way no. to just smash the eggs as you, like, stick it to your skin. <laughs> Listeners, please do not duct tape eggs to yourself. But if you do, send us
3: a picture. <laughs> I'd go double-sided because that raises the possibility of securing even more egg. But at that point, wouldn't it become conspicuous? When you've got that many eggs trapped to you, no one wants
2: to ask questions.
3: That's probably true. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Like, I think there's a certain level of weird where people just actively avoid you
2: so they cross the street to get away from you which really does good things for the security of those eggs
1: <laughs> if you can think of an easy way to steal eggs please do right into us
2: <laughs> it's like one of those one of those special um challenges like maybe in a, in a science class it's like okay um
3: you've got this you've got this egg um design a parachute or something like that um you know because uh they knew about Ritz
2: and the Scoffier. Mm. They knew sometimes you gotta steal some eggs.
0: Are you suggesting that you make parachutes for the eggs so you can like take them somewhere high up and then drop them to the person to like the egg fence?
3: Yeah.
1: I would have thought though, with the Ritz being like a luxury hotel, he would have been making enough profit anyway without needing to embezzle.
0: Have you considered rich people? True.
3: I think I
2: can't I can't remember. I think this may have not have been at a a place where they actually had any ownership. This may have been at the at the Savoy or,
3: ah. or
2: just early early career.
1: Okay, well well in that case, gotta do what you gotta do.
3: Got gotta raise capsule somehow. Yeah. I really hope that nobody is listening to this just kind of you know and doing something else, getting
2: distracted, and then they go, Oh, okay. Um Escoffier and Ritz were egg thieves, they stole the eggs and then they repeat that to somebody else. I mean, you sure can repeat it to other people, but don't tell anyone where you heard it.
0: In, like, five years, we'll see a Tumblr post detailing (laughs) how the Escoffier stole eggs. History is written by the podcasters. Kind of is, though, is the sad thing.
2: Terrifying. (laughs) I don't want the weight of
3: all this responsibility. It's a terrible yoke upon me. (laughs) I think Bray, let me just Google a, how to kick someone out of a podcast. I, th-
0: I think that is probably a good point to end the episode.
2: of the podcast.
0: Um, so yeah, if if you want to send us your egg crime ideas, um, you can email us at breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. If you would like to send them to
1: us by Twitter, you can find us on Twitter at breadandthread. And also the same name on Tumblr and YouTube where we have
0: um, YouTube versions of our audio episodes. And if you want to support us so we don't have to resort to taping eggs to our bare flesh, <laughs> um, you can go to patreon.com slash Thread, where you can get access to a Discord server as well as monthly patron exclusive recipes and keep us out of egg-based penury <laughs>
3: Thank you very much Nick for telling us all about Monsieur Escoffier es- Escoffier Escoffier egg Escoffier 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 <laughs>
1: whose entire legacy we have just butchered. Um, But I really enjoyed learning
3: about the way that he changed cooking. Do you want to say the thing at the end? Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.